0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, by the time you hear this, a new live book version should have been released. And an exciting feature in this new release is the presentation view, which I could see as being really cool for meetups, maybe even in-house trainings at a company, or doing your ElixirConf presentation. So it will be interesting to see if anyone does use this for an ElixirConf presentation that's coming up.
1: All right. The list of speakers at ElixirConf US 2023 has been released along with their talk topics. There are a lot of really great talks coming up here. I'll just list a couple here. There's Jason Axelson about uh, drawing a, to a seven color e ink screen. So we still got some scenic and we got some nerves topics there. We got Jenny Bramble talking about black box techniques for unit tests. That's always good testing. Zach Daniels is going to talk about Ash 3.0 and how we're better together. <laughs> so of course, there's going to be AI topics. We got Charlie Holtz talking about building AI apps with Elixir. And of course, Boy Tech Mock will be talking about Rec, a batteries-included HTTP client for Elixir. Can't have a conference without an HTTP adapter talk. We're going to be exploring Liveview Native with Brooklyn Myers from Dockyard. So that'd be pretty cool. Gosh, there's so many good things. I could just list more and more and more. But this is going to be a good year. You can start planning which talks that you're going to you're going to go to. I'm sure, we'll talk about it next episode, too. I'll have to dive into some of these and give maybe give my short list.
2: Next up, Michael Lubis of Paraxial.io IO shared an interesting article where he announced a new app called App Audit. So this is something to help with your dependencies. And so he kind of goes into talking about how due to the nature of how we specify dependencies in our mix.exs file, it can be hard. It's ambiguous when you look at it. You can't tell exactly which version you're running. So if 1.0.1 had a vulnerability, but 1.0.2 fixes it, you can't really tell 100% of the time just by looking at that mix exs file. And so app audit will, at runtime, pull down your dependencies and send them over to his servers and give you a nice little UI or a dashboard so you can know exactly what dependencies are running and what versions they have and i can only assume that this will lead eventually into something like checking for vulnerabilities and telling you that you have a bad version right
0: and i think some of the 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 things that you're trying to avoid there is a vulnerability is announced at some point later and then you want to figure out at what point were we vulnerable to this or or potentially exposed and just being able to go back in time and saying oh, is this, we had this version at this time that was deployed previously. And doing that kind of analysis for security can be hard because it takes a concerted effort. It's like something you have to like actually plan and, and try to do.
2: Now, that's a good point because like like I was saying, like you can't, you couldn't go through your Git history and be like, well, right here we had the version because you what you could see is you would say, well, from here to here, we could have potentially had that version. Like it would have been greater than 1.0.0 but we don't know. And so this will give you that historical time series data telling you like every time you deployed from this deployment to that deployment, you did have that vulnerable version.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because like really your mixed lock file will tell you the exact version, but you don't even know necessarily when that was deployed or when it was replaced. So it's just talking about like in that production environment, when was I exposed potentially? I love seeing that Michael is focused on the Elixir community, the Elixir ecosystem, and focused on security tools. So that's really cool. And next up, after 12 evenings of live streaming his development, Jose Valim finished his work to load database results into Explore Data Frames with ADBC. The work was done on the Explorer project, and the PR was merged. And if you've ever really heard about the indie hacker kind of mentality of building in public i'd say like that's exactly what he was doing here He was building in public but even more so than what people normally mean by that like he was like live coding it and turning it into a pr and and getting that merged next up uh mitch hanberg announced the first public
1: release of next ls paired with elixir tools update elixir tools is kind of like a repo that collects all these kinds of well tools elixir tools together and next ls being one of them there's a, another suite of tools in there like a credo language server which is really neat so anyway, the announcement is to say that NextLS is ready for early adopters. All right. So to get started, you either install the Elixir Tools NeoVim extension or the Elixir Tools VS Code extension. Mitch has a, a blog post on a artisanally crafted website because, of course, when you make a tool, you also have to make a website and a custom publishing workflow for that. So he's that's also a tool <laughs> in here called Tableau. Anyway, so we have a link to the announcement probably that the first question folks are going to have on this and I'm just going to tell you now it's like what does this do what does next ls do that that elixir ls doesn't do well there's a lot that elixir ls does that next ls doesn't do yet but i want to differentiate what do you use out of elixir ls you know that that maybe next ls also provides now so the big features are compiler diagnostics so you know when things don't compile or there's warnings or something code formatting workspace symbols document symbols that means it can reliably jump to like a function head smartly by understanding the code versus like grepping for the the words and then finally go to definition those set of features in next ls is is like i think that's like the the baseline of of a language server and what most people are going to be using out of that so that's pretty fantastic for early adopters because i think that's fairly complete like Eighty to ninety percent of like what you probably use Elixir LS for anyway. There's certain things that aren't there, like Code Lens, like running this test that you're looking at, Code Actions, maybe. So there's going to be some things that aren't there. But Next LS needs some adopters so that way we can know about those things, have a variety of environments to test this in, and hopefully also contribute back to Next LS to make it better. So very excited. It is architected differently. I won't go into it. Go read the blog post. Mitch is a fun guy, smart guy. So I think this is going to be a good, successful project.
2: Next up, have you ever wanted to turn one of your Phoenix web pages into a static site with basically no work? Well, Lubian has written a mixed task for you. All you got to do is pop this little uh, mixed task into your application. And it looks like maybe you specify the routes that you want it to run on. And it's going to just spit out some nice static HTML for you. So that's kind of cool.
0: And next up, Tyler Young wrote a blog post that could help people looking to hire more Elixir devs. And it's really just five points. And I'm just going to give the headlines. I'm linking to a Twitter thread and a blog post where he kind of turned it into a blog post as well. But his points are number one, be visible in the community. I think that totally makes sense. Number two, talk about your use of Elixir, contribute to open source ecosystems, post to language-specific job boards, and be open to training people in Elixir. Totally agree with it. That's the approach that we try to take as well. Just the idea is like, be visible. Put yourself out there saying, we do Elixir and talk about your use of Elixir. And that, if you're looking to hire Elixir devs and you're concerned, oh no, if we adopt Elixir as our tool, then there won't be a large enough pool to draw from. Really, if you put yourself out there and you're doing things in public, people will find you and they will ask to come work with you. So it's a great opportunity to just you know be present, be out there. And I totally agree with everything he said. So you can go check out that resource if that's a situation you may find yourself in.
1: All right, next up, John Curran wrote up a nice guide for how to build the magic link feature. You guys, you guys ever build one of these? They're they're pretty uh pretty straightforward, not too bad, but. I haven't seen a guide in a while for how to do this in Phoenix and LiveView, so this is a guide on how to do that. After clicking the email, logs into the website. How to send the email? This guide goes through it all. So it's it's pretty simple, but we also want to do it safely. John Curran is a securely extending Phoenix Gen Auth to add a Magic Link authentication for a Phoenix
0: LiveView application, which is pretty neat. Yeah. What I liked about that is just that it's building on Phoenix Gen Auth, right? It's like, we've already got this thing that will get me all this way and do a ton for me. It's like, I just want to be able to add another little bit that does like the magic link from the email to log me in. So I liked it that it was uh, taking it from that approach.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I say Phoenix live view and, and maybe the blog post is pointing this out, but just, you know, if you're, if you're coming from an email to log in, that's a new tab. You don't really have like an existing (laughs) WebSocket connection to like do the authentication over the WebSocket. So I don't think that's really applicable here. It's something that interesting to think about Auth and live view. is always like a, you always have to like make a decision there. Am I going to just do auth through normal like controllers, like normal Phoenix stuff, or is there like, how can I tie live view into this, the the WebSocket part of it? Anyway, so this this guide, nice and simple. And yes, love that it's Phoenix Genoth. Very battle tested at this point.
2: Next up, a paper about Elixir was submitted to the Empirical Software Engineering Journal, and it's titled Understanding Code Smells in Elixir Functional Language. So you might be wondering, so what? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's kind of true, but it's just it's it's cool to see that that Elixir is, is extending a little more into the academic focused area and that people are putting energy towards elixir in that space and i think it's just a sign that people are finding enjoyment out of it and i think academic people are awesome they invent cool things and it's cool to see it going there yeah
0: that's where our type system is coming from it's out of the academic arena now it's turning into you know into the development phase and that's just exciting stuff and last up jason stibbs wrote a post about how elixir docs are built different And this is the kind of thing that's really handy if you're new to Elixir. So Elixir Docs are built different in a good way in that people are often, when they're coming new to Elixir, they're saying, wait, you know, where are all the blog posts? Where's my Google search doesn't really bring me back what I want. And there's not a whole lot of stuff on Stack Overflow. Jason, as he's been working with a lot of people coming new to Elixir, he's been writing more of these things that are kind of good tips for people who are coming to the language. So this post is one of those where it's a guide on how to use HexPM and HexDocs, even showing you how to do diffs between different versions of a library using Hex. Great stuff like that. If at your company you're bringing on new people and you want to have some resources to help train them, this can be one of those resources just to help people figure out how to find and use the, the wonderful docs that we do have in Elixir. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Andy Glassman. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I saw this blog post where you were talking about your experience using Phoenix Live View over several years and some anti-patterns that you saw, which I thought would be really interesting to discuss. And then you proposed some alternate ways of solving this, like I think you call it the async pattern. So I thought that would be really cool to talk about and just explore this. But before we jump into that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what
3: kind of work are you doing? I live in Elm Grove, Wisconsin, which is about 15 minutes west of downtown Milwaukee and about two hours north of downtown Chicago. I'm currently working at a company called SwayDM. It's a really small team and one of the original co-founders, and we're basically building a direct messaging platform that we're trying to target creators to help filter through their direct messages and help give them another tool for monetization. And we're also now pivoting and focusing on small businesses to give them easy to use tools to connect with their customers and offer them value that they can then use to come into the store and and get redemptions and interesting things like that. And is that all Elixir on the back end? Yeah, so we were Elixir from the start, Phoenix, LiveView, a lot of other interesting tools in there as well. A lot of admin tools, which we could talk about later as well.
0: Nice, cool. Yes, yeah, so you did have another blog post that talked about admin tools. So yeah, well, I, I'd love to talk more about that too. So I would love to hear just a little bit about how you came to Elixir.
3: Like what was your path like for that? 2019, I was working for a company in the higher ed space and we Previously, my 10 years of developing was all Java. So did a lot of Java at FedEx and other smaller, larger companies and was doing Java and Kotlin at this education company. And we were acquired by a company out of New York and they were building a new integration platform all in Elixir. And so I joined that team and really kind of just dove into Elixir there and really liked it. And so far, I haven't looked back too much at the Java world. So I've been really enjoying Elixir and you know, learning more about it on a daily basis. That's really cool.
0: We don't hear a lot about people coming from the Java side to Elixir. I know there is a, a strong contingent there, but uh, I'd love to just hear it briefly. You know, we can talk about that. Just, you know, it's coming from OO to functional. It's coming from static typed to more dynamic type. Like, what was that like for you? Was that a challenge? Was, you know, how did, what made it successful for you?
3: It was a it was a definite definite paradigm shift for me. You know, luckily one of the last big projects I worked on before we were acquired, we used Kotlin and we took a really functional approach to a lot of our Kotlin. So that part wasn't as big of a shift. You know, no typing, no like strict interfaces and things like that was more of a shift for me, but it just had so many pros that it makes so many things a lot easier with you know e- being able to Construct data super easily, and not having all this ceremony around creating data in your code, and just the flexibility. And I've I've just really liked it so far. I have a whole list of draft blog posts that I have on a lot (laughs) of these topics that will eventually be polished enough for me to release. So stay tuned for some of those. Awesome.
0: Well, I think it's a good time to jump in and talk about what you've been doing with LiveView, especially since you've been doing it LiveView with the company too. It's no secret that we are fans of LiveView. I use it wherever I can and that's pretty much always. So I saw your post about anti-pattern. So I'd love to talk about like what is the anti-pattern that you are seeing in LiveView? And was this did this come out of work experience, people coming to the company? Like where did you see this
3: pattern? There's a couple anti-patterns that I've seen working specifically with LiveView and a lot of it is just that it was a newer approach that you know, people haven't used a lot, so even in in uh, in like Java land, we didn't really see a lot of problems like this because we're you know are not pushing diffs to the the client. One of the big anti patterns that I've seen is the let it crash mantra that you know we in Elixir like to use. I think there is a lie. One of the anti patterns I see is that. Letting it crash in a live view isn't always necessarily the best user experience. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do have to put those you know extra rescues in there or be a little bit more cognizant about how you're handling error cases because what you don't want to do is get somebody stuck in like an infinite live view reload. <laughs> <laughs> it can be really frustrating and I'm sure anybody that's used live view for a production thing has run into this problem. Especially one specific one that I've that I see a lot that I have run into a lot is not putting in a default handle info clause. So one thing that I always do now when working with LiveView is I always put in a default handle info that takes everything and just logs a debug level log that's like, "Hey, you didn't handle this thing here." Especially if you're working with you know pub sub and subscribing to something that other people might be adding new events to.
2: Yeah, the let it crash thing is funny. It's like if you've ever been watching somebody else demo your product and you get the little scroll bar the little load bar on the top like goes across really fast and you're like oh yeah <laughs> maybe nobody else noticed but i saw that that was crashing right there
3: yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like why did that crash oh geez <laughs> so these are all things that we've run into at sway one of the other big ones that i think in retrospect was an anti-pattern is i i'm dubbing the stack creep so when you're working in phoenix and live View, you, you really want to try to keep your tool tools simple. So with Elixir and LiveView, we use like tailwind stimulus or like JS in, in La, Phoenix is now available. But when we were first starting out, Phoenix has evolved a lot since then. So we had front end engineers bringing in things like react. So now we have react in some dead renders. We have react in live use. We have react in components and So now when you jump into different parts of the code, you're like, okay, well, this is using React. And so I'm going to have to like write this wrapper around this and make sure I have the right IDs. And it can really lead to a lot of confusion and slow moving updates as far as like just your engineering velocity. So I'm working to move us towards a more definitive stack that's like simpler and more. Elixir and Phoenix and LiveView related and tried to move away from some of the react things but you know that makes it difficult for people that are used to living in that react ecosystem to do things. You know, luckily Phoenix LiveView has evolved a lot over the last 2 years to where there's a lot more natural things that that as a react developer you're used to like slots and better use of components and things like that.
2: Yeah, I remember when I first started LiveView? They didn't have a lot of slots. They didn't have a lot of components, and it's been nice with these additions lately. Uh, the slots and the core components that come auto-generated, I feel like, have really eased a lot of things that I feel like would have been painful when I when I came to LiveView. I don't. I think it was what were we on, Mark? We were we were on like some really early versions, and like yes. every patch was or minor change was just like all right, let's rewrite our app almost. And I remember come, I came from React and that was a stretch for my brain. And so I, I hope it's a lot easier now with, with the slots and the components.
0: Yeah, we, we did a lot of dirty hacks to try and, and solve some of the problems we had. We even ended up going to Surface UI as a way of helping get that componentized stuff now. But I totally agree that Phoenix Live View today solves all the problems that I have and all the needs that I I need for my apps.
1: It's, it's not to say that there isn't a place for a good front end you know workflow, especially early on with Live View. Like Alpine JS had a really good spot to fill those kinds of needs. Today, I feel like that's less so, but I think I think it's still like valuable enough to bring in when you have a lot of complex UI actions going on.
0: Yeah, it's true. I still use some Alpine JS. Yeah.
1: And recently, because of course it does, the JavaScript ecosystem evolves yet again. There's a, there's another framework out there like HTMX that seems to be alpine lightweight kind of, you know, stuff like that.
0: I know that's caught a lot of attention in the Python community too.
1: Yeah. Like, as a yeah. way of doing stuff. I won't get us distracted here on <laughs> HTMX, but but I I, I want to be careful not to call call this kind of stuff a anti pattern, which is kind
3: of like what your post is about, right? Yeah, that that's a good point. Like I I wouldn't say it's an anti pattern as long as you're con- consistent about like when to use certain things. You know, we we were a startup and we we had. You know, contractors and different front-end people coming in and doing different things, and we're trying to maximize their time. And we could have been more, you know, a little more strict about, you know, like here's where we use this type of thing, rather than you know throwing in a React component to render like a button a certain way. Yeah. So that would be the anti-pattern, is like just not coming up with a strategy in general about when and where to use those types of like escape hatches, I guess, for, for lack of a better term.
1: I get it. I feel like there's a pendulum in in tech. We swing towards monoliths. We swing towards micro uh, services and stuff like that.
2: There's no middle ground.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's never middle ground. You can't just settle. I guess we're all sharks. We would die if we just stopped. But the, the front end, you know, tooling. There's always there's always been a lot of tooling fatigue, and I, st- I think that still happens in JavaScript, right? And we just we're just afraid as back end engineers. I think we tend to be more afraid of bringing in that kind of tooling fatigue, but not to say that we've ha- haven't had our own, like you guys were talking about <laughs> earlier with surface UI and live view, just constantly, you know, changing out from under you, but that's why it's pre 1.0, I reckon. Right. So I, I, I guess I'm, yeah, I'm always fascinated to see where people settle in their tech stack to avoid tooling fatigue and also have that kind of like balance in development balance being, like what you said, velocity and your in in creating new features and getting things launched and getting things done, but then also not necessarily restricting yourself to a really small set of of developers in a bad way, like it could be a really good thing to have a small tight team of of doers, right but if you legitimately need help, like my u i skills are just bad, like I need somebody in here, but all they know is react having to get that balance of being able to move forward. Yeah, I'm always curious. So anyway, really cool to hear you talk about that. Maybe we'll have to get another episode on HTMX. But the big thing here out of this, though, and I'll stop talking in a second. <laughs> the big thing that caught my attention from your blog post, though, is, yeah, you got you got anti-patterns in here, but a lot of these anti-patterns are tied to processes that are tied to your live view processes. Tell me more about... What what was the scenario that brought this up and why, you know, why were async tasks something that you considered?
3: Yeah, I was kind of saving this one for last because it's one that we can elaborate on the on the most, I think. And one of the things I've seen with LiveView specifically is you start out simple. Your LiveView starts out simple, but as it grows, you know, for us with, at SwayDM, we have you know, a list of conversations and then you can go and do a specific message and there's just lots of things to load in. There's, you know, your list of messages, there's people's profiles, there's wallet balances, there's Stripe integrations. As these things get more complicated, it's really easy to just say like, all right, I'm just going to grab this value from this module and throw it in an assign. Over time, it's going to start to slow down. You're not going to notice right away, but, uh, you know, I, I monitor this in Datadog and suddenly I'm like, well, some of these things are starting to take a little bit while, a little while to render. And I started using just an individual like fix it on an individual basis approach so specifically for the conversations list i put like a, a skeleton of what it looked like in there and then set it to loading initially and then i'm like all right well now how what's the best way to you'll know, load this asynchronously we'll use like a task supervisor okay so what how am i going to get that data back to the live view i'm going to have it send a message back to the live view just using send and then it's going to assign certain things. And that's kind of how it started. And then I was kind of refined it there and you know, used it for a number of different things. And I'm like, oh, let's just see how this works in production. And it, it worked really well. So I started implementing it in other live views, but now I'm finding that I'm copying you know, a lot of like, okay, how, what's the best way to spawn this task? What's the best way to get the handle, put the structure of the handout in full call and assign these things what's the best way to group these these certain set of assigns that I want assigned all at once? And I eventually got to a point where I was thinking, I just need to put this in a module once and for all. And the process of doing that was actually really, really beneficial because I consolidated all the code. You do like use async assigns. It brings in the standard callback. It gives you a standard way to kick it off. It puts it on Rails so I don't have to have common error handling logic, common default setting logic. And it actually became way more robust and usable that I, once I had it done, I was able to replace it in like the five other live views I had in like 10 minutes. And it just it just worked.
2: That's really cool.
3: Yeah. So I think what's,
0: what's worth talking about is the problem that you're seeing is, and it sounds like this is kind of like a dashboard type of view, right? It's like they, they log in and this is where they have the overview of all of their stuff. And that's a lot of data that's pulling from lots of different places. In that view, the problem that you had is that the date, if I just do it without thinking about it, I just do this, the simplest approach, I'm going to load it in my mount, all right? Load my data in my mount of my live view. And that mount gets called twice, right? And I think that's the problem.
3: Like you were double loading a lot of data. Why is that a problem? Well, I started looking at the database traces and I just was realizing like every time this mount function is called, I'm making like a hundred queries to the database due to pre pre preloads and all the different things. And then every once in a while you throw in like a third party API called a stripe or something. So like there was obviously an issue here. I'm like, this is just a lot of load, like not necessarily that I'm worried about the load, but just it sucks up a lot of, you know, database connections so, you know, you get a couple people loading a live view, like that's, that's a lot of connections getting sucked up. And then now you're getting latency from people waiting on the database queue.
2: And you're just always sad that like half of that stuff is duplicated, right? <laughs>
3: yeah. And then, you know, there's no way to basically like, there's no simple way to say like, okay, i will take all that data I just retrieved and use it again. There's ways to do it, but it, none of it's like out of the box. I don't think. So my solution was like, okay, well, I'll just only do it in the connected, like socket is connected block. But now you're getting into, you know, managing state life cycles of individual, individual assigns. So now you might have like an is loading assign and like we have a messages is loading and then your messages. And then at various times throughout your live view life cycle, like maybe I get a new message on a pub sub subscription should I go back to the loading state? When should I do those different things? And so being able to use this like async assign pattern really helps you consolidate that. So like if I call it a certain way, it is going to go back to a loading state. If I call it another way, it won't. And all that logic is just kind of in one block versus scattered throughout your live view. I have to admit,
1: your the API for this is like wonderful. This is <laughs> like really easy to use. It's 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 pretty cool, but I'm flashing back to like six years ago or something. And I am know, I know you've already thought about this. I, I'm thinking back to like react. I'm thinking back to SEO and I'm thinking back to all of these problems that feel like they were introduced by typically front end, you know, uh, platforms, right? You come to the page and there's, there's nothing on it.
2: There's a skeleton of something that shall be.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, problem one there being, well, if it's a public site, Google can't crawl that to get any interesting information. Right. And maybe that doesn't matter for a lot of use cases. And it probably doesn't if like, if you're trying to load for specific stuff about a user that's logged in, well, Google's not going to care about that anyway. So like there's problem one. The problem two is if I have an easy abstraction to put a bunch of Put a hundred database calls on, <laughs> on, on an async connection. There, maybe I should be looking at those database <laughs> queries and database connections. <laughs> okay, sorry to say this, but not swooping it under a, a, an async assigned rug, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me how you work work through some of those like trade offs of putting yeah async work off. Oh, and and then the other thing was memory. A, a, anything that you put into this into this async pattern has to be held in the socket, uh, at least to some some degree, right? Like it's assumed that you're delaying some load to put into the socket to render and then keep track of. So yeah, tell me tell me how you think through those, those kinds of issues. What do you do with it? How do you deal with that with your async assign kind of pattern here?
3: So as far as SEO goes, we, we don't really use any live view for public facing pages that would be indexed. Yeah, but it, it's definitely a, like the pattern would be fle- that is flexible enough to support that. So when you think of the life cycle of the live view, there's like the dead render and then there's the connected render. And the way I have the async assign working right now is your defaults basically are evaluated in that initial render or anytime you call that async assign, it's going to load those values in, which could be a database call. could be anything, put assign it to the current socket and then spawn off the task, which will come back through the async assign handle info call. So you can still definitely do anything that needs to render like an open graph tag or like something that, that I do is for like our messages list, it'll render like the first 10 and then render the next 50.
1: Mm,
3: okay. That's for, you know, there's like a number of reasons to do that in a hundred database Calls might've been an exaggeration, but it can add up, like, especially when you, <laughs> yeah. we start getting, doing a lot of preloads, but I think it's flexible enough that you, is as long as you understand what it's doing, it, it can be advantageous to use in an, in a number of situations. As far as like the memory usage, I think you're probably like that data is going to end up in the socket eventually anyway. You know, there, there's probably other things that are going to cause issues sooner or, like if you're passing all of your signs to like live components or things like that, that might add up more over time. Does live you still do temporary signs? Is that, or
1: has that been, you have this stream? Yeah. It's a stream now.
2: I mean, you could still use the temporary assigns, Okay. But I think they're trying to be replaced by streams now.
1: But there, there are two, two different kind of use cases though. Like there is a stream that I do want in the socket efficiently that I want to continue to append to, but there's also the, like the stuff for that first render that I don't, care about i just want the first render don't store it in the socket just just render and throw away is there an escape hatch from async assigns to like utilize that kind of stuff
3: you can set any default i think you wanted and that'll just go straight to the assign you don't necessarily have to reload that same assign so like i could have as part of the 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 call like initial i could say like above the fold messages Mm -hmm. and then have like a messages and I could set above the fold messages as part of that initial async assign call. And then in the callback only set messages, but I would probably argue that you should really only be using it for things that you want to set a default and manage those states. So I I don't know if I would use async assigns for something like an initial render, a quick initial render that you want some like open graph tags or above the fold type of thing.
0: Yeah. I think what's worth talking about is just like what, problem situation is this a really good solution for and when is it overkill yeah because like that's that's the judgment we all have to make when we're building our systems
2: this is the life cycle of what live view happens i think mark (laughs) like you start out with a live view you just swallow the double mount because your database queries are fast Mm -hmm. it gets a little more complicated and then you do the naive approach where you're like this pains my heart and soul to double, <laughs> to run these queries twice. They're getting heavy enough. So you put, a, you put an if statement at the top and you say, if it's loading... Put a little spinny circle. Uh Otherwise, render all of this other div stuff. So you you just block off everything. So you don't have to manage the skeleton. You don't have to manage like, is messages loading? Is conversations loading? It's just like, they're either all loading or they're all not. (laughs) Andy's approach is like one step even better than that, where it's like, you know what? I just want them to all be fired off asynchronously. When when one is done loading, that immediately pops in. It's not waiting for them all to be done loading. So it's it seems like it's, it's more complicated. You're taking on a little more complexity, but I feel like you've kind of wrapped it up nicely with a bow on top. And it's a step towards like you're becoming more complicated. This live view has grown.
3: <laughs> that, that's my that's my thought. It, it it's yeah it's the it's the next next step. Because yeah, when you're starting out, it is easy to just, you'll know, load up the page and it, everything just works. And it really, it you have to take that next step to understand the frame, the, like the live view framework a little bit better to know like, okay, well, why should I be making these calls twice? Like, should I be, like, it was easy, but there's definitely cases that you can take it too far. Like the way I structure it typically is, you know, if you're just piping all of your assigns in the mount, I pipe all the assigns that aren't going to be asynced. So I do all those as like a block. And then I think I have this in the post. I like wrap the async assign in another function. That's like async assign messages, async assign conversations, async assign wallet ba- balance, and then just pipe it through that and then connect to any socket or connect to any sockets or subscriptions. And then that's it. So my, I try to, cause I've seen mounts can get crazy. Like I've seen mounts that are a couple hundred lines long. Ooh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> where
2: I thrive. I thrive in <laughs> <Yeah>. big mounts. <laughs> yeah. And like as your live views get more complicated, like what Mark was saying, you have to like decide where it's worth it and sometimes queries are fast. Like I've got live views where like everything still just mounts twice or gets queried twice except for that one thing that we know is painful and we async that one thing.
3: Like the big obvious ones are third party, like database ones. Yes, it's probably not going to cause an issue most of the time. But the ones that I find the biggest benefit are, are like calls to Stripe and third-party APIs, Yeah, especially if you need to chain, like chain them. Like you were saying before, David, about like React state management and like, it can get crazy. You want to try to avoid, avoid that. So I found like, if I have a chained API call, like where I have to call the Stripe customer and then like get all their payment intents or something, I'll just wrap that in an async assign, you set an initial like loading value or even like some initial customer data based off of info I already have from the database. And then in the supplier, I'll like, okay, make this call to get the customer and then make the call to get their payment intents and then assign it to the socket. So like, you don't have to deal with any of that, like in your act in the rest of your live view code, It's just kind of consolidated to that one section. So, yes, I totally
0: agree. Like in particular, like this dashboard t- type interface where I'm pulling data from lots of different places might be multi table joins and especially when you're talking about like I'm pulling out to an API external I don't know you know how quickly they're going to respond that all makes perfect sense right I just want to make sure like this would be total overkill for a crud app right <laughs> to if I'm just loading a a thing to edit it like that is
3: total overkill definitely the other thing that it can be over overkill with two, and I tried to use it for this was we have like some message counters around the app to show, like, if you have pending messages and one of the things it would do is like kick off a query or if it ever received a message on a, on a pub sub topic, it would like re- redo that. But sometimes you're getting like bursts of messages. So it would be kicking off this async assigned thing, like six times in a second. And like, that doesn't really make sense. So you got to be smart about when it's doing things like that, because you could possibly get like a stale value that way. So you're putting some logic around there of like, is it already loading? Okay, don't kick it off again or use hammer or something to rate limit it or something like that. (laughs) So what I think is totally awesome is a live view
0: is a process and Elixir has awesome concurrency story where you can just fire off these tasks that do stuff in another process and message it back to your live view process. Hey, I did my work. Here's your answer. And live, you can just render it. <laughs> that is, I love that. It's so cool. It's just that it, it's so easy to do that. And it, and it feels native. That's the other part.
1: You're not necessarily having to like, yeah, go into this other, other package for dealing with this kind of stuff. One thing I want to ask about this, cause like, okay, spawning the process I, we've, we've, We've talked about that at length now, but what about d- despawning the the process? how How does these async assigns kind of handle stuff that are kind of in process, but like the user has navigated away to something else or close the tab? Like, what happens there?
2: We don't worry about those, David. <laughs> <laughs> we let it crash. Yeah, <laughs> they come back and they say, "Hey, oh, never mind. That person I was going to give this message to is not there anymore." Gotcha. And then your whole server goes down.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's definitely some like edge cases that a lot of my uh, experience with with elixir in live view is like I'm just going to c- continue to do this until it stops working for me, and then I reevaluate. So yeah, when, yeah. I will cross that bridge when I get there. Or or Honey Badger forces you to
2: yeah. <laughs> with, with a with a big bill or whatever error reporting it is. I mean that's a good question though. Like what happens when you send to a pid that doesn't exist? Does it just does it just die quietly?
0: The beam when you send a message to a pid that's no longer living or never existed, it just says. It's like a mailbox that there's no address. There, it's just like ah, oh, throw it away. Just it's just dis- discarded. But but does the cut co- that the, the collar fails then too? Right? No, it successfully sent the message. Goes away.
2: So it seems like it's fine. It's fine.
1: <laughs> all right. Well. Okay. So so w- one of the things I love about what we've been talking about this whole async science thing and you know all the the myriad of pr- of complexity that could be introduced like the SEO thing at first. This is why this is why I like admin tools. And because I don't have to care about SEO for admin tools and I don't have to care about optimizing my hundred database calls, you know, for, for an admin tool necessarily. Cause I know that my, my audience for admin tools are like five people or something, you know, probably something along those lines, but you, you have some other thoughts on like admin tools. Tell me what you've, you've written about that.
3: Like how important are admin tools? Like when do you start developing it? That kind of stuff. Admin tools are kind of one of my passions of software engineering. And it kind of spawned like not just for Elixir, but since I started my engineering career at FedEx and the best teams to work with were the teams that had really robust admin tools that I didn't really have to talk to them very much, which is such like, like an engineer thing to say. But, you know, the teams that didn't, you get on the phone with them. They got to be working. They'll get back to you. Whereas the teams that built these these tools, I can just, you know, get, get the answer. I don't have to bug somebody and take time out of their day for them to answer something simple versus uh, like running over to a DBA's desk and being like, can you run this query for me? Like from like 2009, that's like been my experience with tools and every company I've been at that has focused on tools. It's just been such like a more pleasant developer experience and just engineering and product experience working as a team. So at that previous higher ed company that I was talking about, one of the big things that we did when we built the initial product. And then like another product, a Greenfield project after that was a focus on building these admin tools for not just like us as an engineer team. Like, yes, we built tools for us as an engineering team, but a focus on making them useful for product, the product teams, the support team and the customers, and I had seen how it played out at different companies where they didn't do that and it starts to eat into your your time to develop new and interesting features for your customers and that kind of spot like i had been brewing this idea in my head of a blog post for this for like years and i finally was like i'm i've been focusing a lot on tools for at sway DM, and so i'm just going to do this and put a little bit of elixir flavor on it and it got a lot of traction like it got a ton of views on hacker news I ended up turning it into a talk and I did the talk at MPEX, which I can you'll know, give you guys the link for that because it's on, it's recorded now and just got like a ton of positive and feedback that really resonated with people that are like, yes, this is something that I haven't really you know, thought about doing from the first day. Basically the gist of the post is you know, don't wait to write these admin tools. If you start with a, a mindset of you know, supportability from day one, you're going to build better tools. You're going to make your team more successful. You're going to make other teams more successful. You're going to make your customers more successful. So don't wait. And that's kind of the basis for it.
2: Yeah. There's nothing more painful than like your support staff, like just constantly pestering the engineering team or just other teams that are not engineer aware or don't code on the platform, just feeling blocked. And I've, I've definitely seen like how that can just slow down your developers, right? Because your developers have to become the support staff.
3: Yeah, I think the most the stark contrast I saw of this was the the company I was at. Their initial product, it was like a schemaless database, essentially like a home-rolled schema schemaless database. And to make schema changes for these different data structures, they, you had to write code, compile it, upload it to the server and run it. You know, it could be error prone, but it was fine because, you know, the engineers who knew what they were doing were doing it but as soon as you start to get any traction whatsoever your engineering velocity is just going to start to tank you're spending a lot of your time you know talking to support being like okay well what what i can fix this to, i i'll get to it tomorrow but then they'll start to add up and i think at one point the engineering team had a backlog that was like over a month long of these schema changes until one of the engineers came up with the, like a, a DSL that was on rails for the support team to use that would basically block them from doing anything that was too devastating, <laughs> trained them on it, and then got their backlog down under, you know, under a week. And eventually with their correct processes in place was able to turn around these schema changes in like a couple minutes. And you know, everybody was happy after that. So we, when they built the new product from the first day, we're like, okay, let's make this supportable from the first day. And one of the interesting things that happens is you start, it influences how you do your, how you write your code. So when you're writing your code, you're like, okay, well, I want to make this so it easily hooks into a framework like Caffe, or I'm going to write this module so I can, you know, invoke this from Caffe, and I don't have to write, you know, a custom tool. I can just use, you know, a web admin framework out of the box, like, like Caffey, or if you're in Django or if you're in Python world like Django, there's one for basically every stack. And just basically treating that as a trellis for your software to grow on to. It takes 10 minutes to set up. If you add it to part of your process, anytime you do a new feature, you'll spend the 10 to 15 minutes integrating it into, and you're going to, your team is going to benefit.
2: Yeah. So in case the listener's not aware with Caffey, so you're saying it's just kind of like a Django admin for Elixir. It's like, a, it's a library you add. your phoenix project you can either whitelist or eh, however you choose you basically specify like what schemas you want to make available in this tool and then this tool gives you like a a crud interface it's almost like a database interface it's not you can add custom things but it's kind of like you can just create you can read you can delete you can edit records in the schemas that you that you specified And then you can add a few like little widgets or dashboards or add some actions. So like if somebody goes to the user and they want to deactivate a user rather than like editing a user, clicking the active Boolean toggle checkbox, you could, you could make an action that's like deactivate and it will like run a context function for you. So
3: we actually have that action (laughs) deactivate (laughs) (laughs) users.
2: Good example.
3: (laughs) It's super, it's, it's super useful to have that framework in place It's just a starting point, though. In the talk I I linked to, I talk about it as being kind of a trellis and like a hub for other tools. So the web admin interface is the easiest thing to set up that you should do first, but it really energizes or superpowers some of the other tools you're going to use. So, like one of the things that we did was use Earmark for Markdown. And somebody, I forget who I could probably find, I'll find the post, but they wrote a post about how to use Write Phoenix templates in Markdown. And so, a lot of the admin screens and tools that we have that are in Phoenix are just written in Markdown so that we don't have to think about like tag, HTML tags, and things like that.
1: Yeah, this is, we're going to have to like dive into this a lot because there's <laughs> at ElixirConf, I think there's like a couple of tools that are coming out that's going to help with like admin tooling. Oh, and just to connect earlier, you're talking about the Django UI, and it, I'm not as familiar with Python, but I know in the Ruby world that there's a tool called Active Admin that does a lot of this, which might be closer to what Kathy's doing. And just want to, th- I just want to interject in there too, Active Admin, the Django one, Caffey, those are all kind of like similar in, in concept of how you work with it. But I, I just want to throw another alternative out there that Ash might be a little bit... More flexible for configuring that kind of stuff. I don't know if it gives you a UI like Caffe does, so you might have to do a little bit more UI work, and maybe that's where the benefit of Caffe comes in. But um, anyway, there's a lot of good frameworks coming up like that. Beacon uh, is is one that they're going to talk about at ElixirConf um, this year. So there's there's so much back-end admin, you know, tooling. It started off being like real rough, (laughs) but now it's getting like really, it's getting pretty good. And I think there's a lot more attention coming to it. And I agree with all the points you're making there. Like you, you just got to enable and empower your coworkers to be able to make smart decisions on their own too, without requiring it to go through typically a very highly paid individual, you know, like you don't want to dedicate time like that.
2: You know, one thing we've really enjoyed doing is from day one, we had a concept of of admin, but not admin in the sense of like how you would normally it's instead of it being admin, you can think of it as is a software engineer on this exact team. That's what is admin means on our backend. And so we've, we wrap a lot of UI in these is admin functions And we also denote them with like orange borders or like orange buttons, just orange is the style. So they're like, if you're an admin in our app, there's just these orange UI elements all over the place that we just keep for ourselves. Like if something is wrong, there's just a button to re-trigger an open job to fix it. If there's like, if there's a, but if there's like a delete action that like, we think we might need it, but we don't want just anybody to use it we just wrap it in an orange is admin ui element and then we'll click it if it ever comes across as a problem and that's that's gotten us really far with not a lot of effort
3: yeah i really like that idea that's one of the key takeaways i have in in the slideshow is make it easy to find <laughs> like that shouldn't be buried in a confluence document that you have to like read through half the page to know where to go do that Like I I haven't even thought to take it that far where it's like embedded in the actual interface. So I I might steal that.
0: Do you have like an outline of like, if this is where I want to get started with doing some admin stuff, what is like the low hanging fruit, the most valuable stuff to start with?
3: Using an out of the box web framework, like cat, like coffee or Django or something like that for your specific stack is a no brainer decision. You know, it takes 10 minutes to integrate and I like I said, I think of it like a trellis that you're going to grow onto. Don't try to boil the ocean and put like all of your ecto schemas in there. Like there's ecto schemas that I don't even have in ours yet. So it just focus on what you're actually going to want to change and, and look at and modify. And then, you know, don't necessarily expose all the actions. You just like make it a read only. You don't have to worry about is somebody going to change this value and, you know, don't show the hashed password, things like that, like some basic stuff, <laughs> make it, make it super easy to use. And then there's the next step is, you know, find more specific tools. Like one of the, some of the more obscure ones that I've done are just like postman collections or open API specs, but not the way that they're probably intended to be used, which is to like an entire description detailing everything you can do on the api it's this is like a postman collection for support yes like maybe there's a whole collection that is exporting reports and there's a single entry for each type of report like 30 days in xml 60 days in csv and then they don't have to think about like okay here's the export endpoint how do i put it make sure it's a csv how how do i change the days like just make it dead simple for them to use
1: I want to correct myself back there a little bit. Ash does have a plugin for making UIs. So, something to think about. That's called Ash Admin UI or something like that. <laughs> But that is a wonderful list. I feel like I've lo fied it sometimes. Like I've created like a, a separate database with read-only credentials and just like handed them <laughs> like go do go download Postico. Here's the here's the connection string and go look at stuff. You know, there's your ad, there's your admin UI right there. <laughs> yeah. That's not
3: very flexible though. <laughs> I actually I think I have that in the presentation. Like that's a totally valid strategy, is yeah. Like something that I that I do that I've done is yeah, you make the read-only but put it in views like just Mm. if they've asked you the same thing more than twice put it in a view for them like it's easy to do
1: yeah people forget about database views too much i think yeah those are those are pretty handy for like just organizing the kind of data that i do it for myself half the time i'm just trying to test you know some some data sometimes is like three tables away and i need that to like assert that my thing is working or something
0: well, Andy, I, I loved being able to talk with you about this. We've collected a, a number of different links from this discussion that you'll find in the show notes, of which is your, on YouTube, your MPEX talk where you go deeper into this admin discussion, which I think is cool because it's something that I think I could also think more about and building admin first into some of my tooling like that so that even if, if it's like a solo project, right, can still leverage it and, and get further faster. Well, if people want to get in touch with you to follow up with you on any of
3: this discussion, where should they go to do that? They can find me at sway.dm Andy. And I have a link to a bunch of other things in there like Twitter, my blog, GitHub, all those sorts of things. You can also message me on there for free if you'd like, and I'll respond.
2: As he said that, I'm looking at it up and it says, send him a message for a dollar. Just kidding. Free. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> Nobody wants to pay to message me. I'm not that popular.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate the, the discussion and just kind of identifying some of those places where either with admin tools or coming back to live view, thinking about when is it the right time to do something to make this extra engineering effort like around our live views? and making things async, which and I love the API. I, I loved how David called it out like this is a really nice API for doing this. So when it's the right situation, that's a really great way to do it. And so thank you for sharing that with the community.
3: Thanks, Mark, Caden, and David. Definitely appreciate you guys having me on the podcast.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.